a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Every week in this podcast, we tackle something that is going on in the world. We pick something that is topical, that's a real issue, that's interesting, that's meaty, and this gentleman breaks it down. Dr. Keith Sud, a couple of PhDs on international politics, so well-versed on everything, honestly, every scenario that's going on in the world. Uh, we've worked together in media for a number of years, obviously in this podcast, but television as well, um, the producer, Kate Mack. So this is a really interesting one, Keith, and I love that we chose to do this because it's fascinating. China is on track to become the dominant world power by 2050. That's what it wants, but it is that, that is a trajectory that most people would agree with. However, this interesting subplot is that it's going to be a very old country and they, the Chinese cannot convince their people, you know, they've got so much power over their people, what they don't have power over are things like getting them to have babies and they desperately want them to after years of having one-child policy. Now they want them to breed so they don't have a really ageing population and they're not going to do it. No. So um, I work in the scenario planning industry, so we encourage our clients to think about the unthinkable. And this is a great example of encouraging people to think about the unthinkable because, as you said, The dominant idea in global politics is that by the year 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the communist revolution, by that time, China will be the number one power in the world. However, there are a number of warning signs. I've actually devised a total of 10, suggesting that China may not achieve what it's setting out to do. And one of them is that China may grow old before it grows rich. In other words, it'll pay the price for the demographic brutality which it started to inflict when it began its current economic revolution. So in 1976, Chairman Mao died, three years of chaos, and then 1979, leaders like Deng Xiaoping take over and they then create a whole new economic way of of doing business, sort of communism with Chinese features. And part of this was trying to restrict the number of babies being born. So, in fact, if that policy in 1979 had not occurred, then at least 400 million more Chinese would be on the planet. So that that's how effective their one-child policy was. And, of course, the one child quite often meant one boy. Um, so when girls were born, they were just thrown away. Before, in fact, they were actually registered. So there was no record that they're actually even born because it already just been disappeared. So that's created a separate issue for China. Namely, they've got too many men and not enough women in terms of business opportunities. It almost pay you to recruit Filipinas, women from the Philippines, to you know go across as um, people to marry uh, all these Chinese single men. Anyway, that's a separate story. So what we've seen then is that China... 1979 begins this one-child policy, and like most things in China, it was a great success. What has happened, though, is that they've now been too successful. So five years ago, they said, oh, we're running out of people, so we will now allow you to have two people. And then this week, they've made an announcement saying you can have three people. But if people are not having two babies, they're unlikely to go up to three. Uh, So for me, it's an incredible story. And also linked to this is the fact the Chinese government has been reluctant 
to publish the full statistics relating to its census that it's just undertaken. So we think that the Chinese government may be hiding the full extent of the coronavirus, that more people may have perished than the government was willing to say, and that's a a more recent development. And then there is this long-term development that the Chinese government has actually overreached itself and been too effective with its one-child policy. And so that has meant, therefore, that the census figures would show this decline. And traditionally, people have sort of had this relationship between a large number of people and big military power. Now, I think that that relationship is breaking down, but that's certainly in the Chinese mindset that we need to have a lot of people because we're going to become the the great world power. Therefore, we need to have a lot of people, particularly young people, who are going to serve in the armed forces. So they have issued some figures from the census this week, but you can't make sense of them. (laughs) It's almost as though they've been designed (laughs) to prevent reconciliation if you're trying to work out who's dying, who's being born, and where. So for me, again, the Chinese government is back in the business of massaging the news, this time to avoid bad news from being made public. Also, they've diverted attention to the fact you can now have three babies and getting away from the fact that China has now joined Japan and Germany amongst the big economies of the world where they're beginning to run out of people. So there are fewer people born in Japan this year than there were last year, even fewer than there were, say, 10 years ago. The Italian population, because China, uh, Italy is not a major economy, it's not in the same category as, as Germany, but Italy, I've seen, now has a population size about the size that it was when it began its unification project, which was 1870. <laughs> So the Italian men might be great lovers, but they're not great breeders. (laughs) (laughs) So it it is incredible. When when you think back to Dr. Ehrlich in the 1970s and my own organisation, the Club of Rome, in the 1970s, not that I was then a member, but we were talking about this problem of the population bomb and how we were going to be having too many people born in the world. We are now reaching a point where we can start to say we are levelling off in terms of the growth of population and we will go into a decline by around the year 2100. So by the end of this century, we will actually have fewer humans on the planet. And, of course, you've got this change in the distribution of the populations. There'll be more people in Africa than in India and China combined. So that'll be a new powerhouse if you think large populations mean economic power, but that's military where I get, power. Yeah, that's where I get confused. But does it actually mean that? I mean, I realise, look at India, look at China, they've got huge, huge populations and they are powerful nations. You know, and then you look at other countries around the world that are very populous, that, 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 that's just Like Bangladesh, Pakistan, exactly. Yes. And the, so there is an argument that this is very much old economic thinking, that you need to have a large number of young people who are going to do the work. Now, you've really got, again, you've got a, a separate number of issues here because you've got to also have this sort of balancing out between the young people who are both the workers and who are also consumers. That's what you need. You need a world, well, you need a country of 20-year-olds to, say, 55-year-olds. That's the ideal population. So you want to be able to import the people at the age of 20. Children are expensive, you know, because you've got to spend money on schools and and childcare, et cetera. It's interesting to note that um, of a person's total 
health expenditure in their life, the 25% will be accumulated in the first six months of living and the last six months. So the other 75% will be spread out over the rest of, of your life. If you take the example of my father, 97 years old. So 96 years would represent 75% of his total expenditure. So you, you have the cost of being born and the cost of dying. So really what you want is to have a population, which is where India is at this very moment, that's called the demographic sweet spot, where you've got young people being born and older people dying out, but there is still a, a, a nice balance. The young can pay for the old, perhaps not too well in the case of India, but you know, you've got a balance there. Whereas China's problem is that you've got people who are living longer and you've got a reduced number of children. So this is like a tidal wave that sweeps through society. Uh, eventually, you then begin to ask the question, can we afford the elderly, which is the debate which they have in Italy now. The Italians are running out of people. Japan and Germany, the other two big global economies with China, are the ones with population problems. The United States is being kept going by illegal migration or asylum seekers and all the rest of it. You know, Trump makes a huge fuss about the number of people getting into the US, but they're actually helping the population growth. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. We're talking about, well, I guess what population means to an economy essentially, but specifically in relation to China, who have got a very ageing population. They implemented that one-child policy for years and years and years and often had forced termination. There was all sorts of terrible things they did to control their populations. Uh, that's gone by the wayside. Now they're encouraging people to have children. And But, Keith, obviously, you know, they introduced capitalism to that society. It's now important to them to have money and they don't want to have children. No. And, of course, also, as you say, in China, you've now got the growth of capitalism. Remember, we're back to the 1979 reforms. This is going to be communism with Chinese characteristics, so, so the Chinese version of capitalism, if you like. Um, and like all good capitalists, they look out for number one, do unto others before they get the chance to do it unto you. So the object of the exercise is to get rich. In fact, Deng Xiaoping said, to be rich is glorious. So you see, therefore, that in a society where people are concerned about money, they're not going to spend the money on children, particularly when they think that those children are not going to pay for them in old age. There was an argument a few years ago, which I used in some of my talks at the time, that if you look at the global car market, in the United States, only 10% of cars that are sold go to people who've never had a car. Whereas in China, 90% of cars are going to people who've never owned a car before. And the significance of that is that it's an old age pension. In other words, that parents buy a car for their son so that the son will be more attractive to women. No. Because the woman that your son marries is going to look after you in old age. And there are no women. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other issue because of this uh, demographic imbalance. But if you can, you've got to obviously um, bump up your son's chances of getting a good woman because she's going to look after you in a few decades down the, well, only perhaps a few years down the track. So that's your insurance policy. You are buying a car for your son so you can get the right woman who will then look after you in old age. I think that is still the development at the moment, that the car market in China is still going well, mainly for parents 
who are buying the, the cars for their children. First time ever they've had a car in the family and they give it to the son. So that's one one factor. You know, there's what capitalism does to your way of thinking. It breaks down community values and it emphasises the role of you looking out for number one, being an individualist. That's one development in China. The second development is education for girls. Education is the best contraception there is. A more intelligent a woman is, the fewer children she's likely to have. Hey, what are you saying? What are you saying? <laughs> well, you've got three, which is good, <laughs> which is what the Australian government has said because you've got to have one for the country. So the ideal population replacement rate is 2.1. So parents should have 2.1 children. Obviously, you can't have tenth of a child. So if a group of you, one of you out of ten, had that extra child, well done. The Australian government is proud. They'll give you a medal. So the replacement value is one for the mother, one for the father, and then point one, just as, as an heir and spare, right? China is now reaching around 1.5, which is called the fertility trap. So when you get down there, Italy's already there. When you get down there, it's just too late. You're in a downward spiral. And that's the interesting thing because you can't control that part of your population. Like you can actually do terminations like we saw China do back in the 70s or whatever, yeah. like, you know. You can do that. You can stop it once it started. But now you can't make the population exactly. have children. There's an interesting issue in Singapore when they created the love boats in Singapore. <laughs> this is the, the Singaporean government is also worried about young Singaporeans who are greedy and ambitious and educated young women. They don't want to become a mother and so the Singaporean government looked at two policies. Actually, I haven't been back to Singapore for a, well, because of COVID for a few years. I'm not sure how this is working out, but one strategy they had was the love boat, um, whereby they would bring together the young professional lawyers and doctors, male and female, in the hope that there would be a romance sparked on the boat, which would then stay once they left uh, and returned to shore. And then one thing would lead to another, which would be weddings and then children. So that was Singapore, because if you go to Singapore, you'll notice they're kept afloat by migrant labour. Uh, what they really want are real Singaporeans, not foreigners. The other thing which was being looked at 30 years ago was an idea of, of actually allowing parents to sue their children in old age. Because in traditional Confucian society, parents are looked after by their children, right? It's been that way for thousands of years. It's all changed now in the last few decades. And so the proposal from the Singaporean Prime Minister was that there would be a right for ageing parents to sue their middle-aged successful children to ensure they got proper aged care. So these are all the weird things that are coming about because of people are living longer, fewer babies are being born. And this is Ironically, completely different from what we were predicting 50 years ago. Remember, I wasn't a member of the Club of Rome in those days, but you know, we, we were speculating on what would happen with this you know, increasing population size. And, of course, you go to certain societies and you do see awful tragedies with too many people trying to live in slums. We see that at this moment with COVID. The COVID spreads very quickly in overcrowded facilities. Well, that applies to the United States as much as it would do to a third-world country the rich middle class who don't have so many children and live with plenty of space, they don't have so much of a risk of COVID. 
whereas the families that are all living so close together in ghettos, et cetera. Um, so I, I don't want to minimise the extent of the population problem, uh, but it, it's not quite as bad as were, the predictions were being made 50 years ago when we were talking about the population time bomb. And it would be... would. Be remiss of us, Keith, not to talk about in the context of Australia. We do have an, old, an ageing population here and we're going to have an issue with aged care, you know, that's... So we have aged care and we have superannuation. Now, if I were to have to live in any country, I think Australia, along with the Scandinavian ones, uh, would be the country's best place to cope with the ageing population. We are forcing people to save money, which is what the superannuation guarantee levy is all about. We are forcing people because we're saying, in effect... Don't rely on the old age pension. And similarly, as you say, we've got the whole age care issue, which thankfully is now becoming much more top of mind. We're a long way behind the countries in Scandinavia, but we're ahead, I think, of, of the UK in terms of how we look after older Australians. And, of course, much better than the United States for the looking after older Americans. But, yes, there that, that is also that dimension Australia. We're saved or have been until COVID came along because we were bringing in a lot of young workers. You know, we had an immigration policy based on points. Uh, you could bring somebody in if you're intending to marry them. That's a family reunion. Or you can bring them in because you need them for labour. So they, they, they were good assets the country. And so we had a very controlled immigration policy, which the British will now follow since they're pulling out of the European Union. And that has helped keep us afloat. And, of course, COVID has thrown out everything. But a couple of years ago, Australia had one of the fastest growing populations in the developed Western world. So, and of course, America was doing well as well, uh, but Trump was cutting back on the asylum seekers. But we, we were not nearly as bad as you have with Italy, Germany, Japan, and now China. China is coming clean. It's got a real problem. Dr. Keith, fascinating as always. Thank you. Listener.